Now reading from Luke 17, verses 29 through 37. These are the words of God. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, or look here, do not go out or follow them. For as lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by his generation, just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on that day, when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed, one will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together, one will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? And he, that is Jesus, said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Hello, church. Our passage today is about God's kingdom and God's king, how God's kingdom has come and how his king will be coming back. And when we get into the second coming of Christ, people fall into a lot of different camps. And there are a lot of different camps in this room which means that no matter what I say today, I'm going to step on some toes, which means watch your toes. Uh, my desire is that we would stay anchored to God's word and not be influenced by popular books. I'm looking at you, Left Behind series. Uh, we want to be shaped by the good book. So that's where we're going to start. We all agree Jesus is coming back. And for some, this has been uh, a source of obsession you may have heard of Harold Camping before. He was a famous Christian radio broadcaster. And what made him famous were his studies on biblical numerology. He first predicted that the Lord would come back in 1994. 1994 came and went. Of course, Jesus did not come back, so he went back to the drawing board. And he concocted a new plan. And in 2005, he came out and said, on May 21st, 2011... God would rapture believers up out of the earth, leaving chaos behind for five months, and then in October of that year, Christ would come back, and it would be the end of the age. Well, May 21st came and went. That did not happen, so back to the drawing board again. Okay, never mind. Actually, both of those things are going to happen at the same time in October. Then October 2011 came and went. Are you sensing a pattern here? All in all, camping would wrongly predict the second coming of Christ 12 times. 
Uh, luckily, it seemed at the end of his life that he did repent of this, calling it sin. Um, but there are people who can be so hyper-focused on trying to figure out when Christ is coming back that they lose the whole point of why the Bible talks to us about the return of Jesus. So today we're going to look at Luke 17, 20 through 37, as Rick just read. And we're going to see that Jesus has come and that Jesus is coming back. And before we do, I would like to pray for our time in God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your loving kindness and patience that is meant to lead us to repentance. And we ask that you would open our eyes to see the wonderful things in your word and that you would empower us by your spirit to respond in ways that please you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Many of you have probably heard of God's kingdom being talked about as the already and the not yet. It has already come, but it is not yet here in its fullness. And our passage today is structured in a similar way. In verses 20 and 21, we're going to see that the king first came quietly. And then in verses 22 to 25, in verse 37, we're going to see that he is coming back unmistakably. And in verses 26 to 35, that he is coming back in righteousness. Here's what Luke says in verses 20 and 21. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. So our text opens with Jesus being asked a question by the Pharisees. They want to know, when is God's kingdom going to show up? And Jesus' answer is actually going to contrast what he has to say a little bit later in our passage about his second coming. That will be obvious, but he tells them the kingdom won't come in recognizable ways. It won't be obvious. It won't be noticed. No one's going to say, look, there's the kingdom. But then he tells them that the kingdom is right there in the midst of them. How do we know that the kingdom has come? Because the king has come. That's how we know. Jesus is the king, and he is standing right there with them. The gospel writers go to great lengths to show us that the long prophesied king of the Old Testament, the Messiah, the suffering servant who is coming back, that Jesus is that person. He is the fulfillment of all those prophecies. And yet the religious leaders of the day and the Bible scholars of the day didn't even recognize it. They didn't see what had happened. They are literally asking the king when the kingdom is coming. They're the person who walks up to you and asks if you've seen their glasses while they're resting on their forehead. That's the Pharisees here. And Jesus says the kingdom is not coming back in ways that can be observed. When he said this, he was talking about his first coming. He did not show up the way they expected their conquering king to show up. He came as a baby, born in a small town with humble beginnings. But because they didn't understand who Jesus was in the scriptures, they didn't even notice his arrival. And it makes us ask ourselves, how do we not recognize Jesus as king? Looking around, at the times we're in, perhaps one of the ways is how we put so much hope in politics and politicians. If only we could get the right people in power. Then things will be so much better. To that, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus is already in power. The person we need to be in power is already in power. Do we live like that? 
Maybe we're unable to see that Jesus is king by the way we live in fear. Fear of what others will think of us. Fear for our own safety. Fear for what might happen to loved ones. Fear of missing out. Maybe even fear of death. Jesus says to those of us living in fear, in Mark 5, do not fear, only believe. When we see that our king rules the universe, it melts away our fears. The Pharisees missed that the king was standing right there among them. How might our lives be different if we live in light of the fact that Jesus is the sovereign ruler of the entire universe, that all authority on heaven and earth is his, all of it. The only authority anybody has is what has been delegated to them by the king. And when we live like this is true, it crushes our fear and anxiety, and it brings perspective to what's going on in the world. Nothing is happening outside the control of our king. So no matter what circumstances we find ourselves in, we can say Jesus is on the throne, and what a comfort that is. The kingdom has come because the king has come, and the king will be coming back. Let's look at verses 22 to 25. And he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first you must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. So after answering the Pharisees first, he then turns to his disciples, and he's going to tell them, about what is soon to happen. First, he tells them there's going to be a time coming when I'm not going to be here with you. You will desire to see the days of the Son of Man, but you won't see it. Son of Man is a title that Jesus often gives himself, and it points us back to the Old Testament in Ezekiel and Daniel, specifically in Daniel chapter 7. Uh, Daniel has a vision of the Son of Man, and the Son of Man is given an eternal kingdom so the Son of Man is an eternal king. This kingdom is given to him by God, the Ancient of Days. And in this vision, the Son of Man sits on his throne and is served by all peoples and nations and languages. So when Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, it's one more way in which he's telling us that he is the long-awaited king. But soon he will no longer be with them, which I imagine confused the disciples if their understanding of the Old Testament was right. This is an eternal throne. Why would the king be leaving. They weren't expecting him to leave. But we do see that while he's gone, there's going to be a lot of people predicting his return. They're going to be yelling, look over here, or look here. That sound familiar? Look what's going on. Jesus must be coming back soon. There's wars and natural disasters and famines and floods. Look how bad the world is. Christ's return must be just around the corner. Don't we so easily get suckered into this, this kind of thinking? And yet somehow at the same time, we can look at a guy like Harold Camping and roll our eyes. The guy's a nut job. I guess as long as you don't put an exact date on the return, it's okay. One problem among many that I see with this is how it always seems to be America-focused, like the USA is in the center of God's plan. And that's not new either. Uh, when Europe was kind of the center of the world in the 17th century, a lot of people thought in the year 1666 
that that was going to be the year that Christ came back. Um, they knew the, the number of the beast in Revelation was 666, and apparently you can just tack a one on the front and uh, make that prediction. So in 1666, Europe was kind of a buzz with this idea that this could be the year. And then in London, in September that year, was the Great Fire of London, which burned down tons of homes and churches and buildings. And because they couldn't see outside of their little bubble, the predictions came rapid fire after the, that happened. The end is here. Obviously, Jesus is coming back soon. And as we know, that didn't pan out either. But don't we kind of do the same thing as if God's plan revolves around the U.S.? We say, look at the LGBT agenda taking over. Look at what's being taught in our schools. Look at the secular ideologies taking root in the U.S. The church is being pushed to the margins, and we read all these things as signs of the times as if Jesus is coming back soon. You can pick any Middle Eastern country, and if they would have looked at the world through that lens, they should have expected the second coming of Christ to happen for the last thousand years. This year in Nigeria alone, only up through July, almost 3,500 Christians have been butchered. Right now in Afghanistan, the Taliban is working their way through Christian areas, demanding people's phones to see if there's a sign of a Bible or any other Christian marking and they're executing people. but we think progressives taking power in our government and institutions means Jesus is coming back here. Unfortunately, those kinds of things are not new in those areas. Yes, Jesus is coming back. We are never asked to try to figure out when. He's gonna come like a thief in the night. Even in Matthew 24, Jesus says, only the Father knows the day and the hour. What kind of hubris does it take for us to make these predictions? Don't be one of the people yelling, look here, look there, Jesus' return is right around the corner. And as Jesus told his disciples, do not go out and follow those people. Why? Because when Jesus comes back, it's gonna be impossible to miss. He says it will be like lightning that lights up the sky from one end to the other. We don't get lightning storms very often here. Uh, perhaps you've been in a spectacular lightning storm. Uh, last year, our family was in San Antonio, and they get them there. And we had gone into dinner, and when we came out, it was dark, and way off in the distance, there was a lightning storm happening, and it was unbelievable. The lightning would rip down, you could see so clearly, and all of a sudden it would be like, I don't know how many miles away we were, but it was like we were lit up by a spotlight. Jesus, when he returns, is going to be like that. You're not going to miss it. And that leads his disciples to ask him in verse 37. They say, where, Lord? And he said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. When I read that the first time, I was like, what in the world is going on here? <laughs> that is a strange verse. But what Jesus is saying is, just like you'll know when I come back, it will also be obvious where I come back. In the same way it's obvious where the dead body is by the bird circling above it. 
It will be obvious where Jesus is when he returns. Now, how is this gonna be obvious to the whole world? I have no idea. But we're talking about God here, so I, I don't doubt his ability. Right, making the return of Jesus plain to the entire world, probably not a big problem for the God who made the entire world. We will know when Jesus has come back and we will know where Jesus is. In verse 25, Jesus points us back to his mission. Why did the king come in the first place and why is the king leaving? He came to be rejected, to suffer, and to die. That was his task. He will not be going anywhere until he gets to Jerusalem, as Eric talked about last week and we've seen through our series in Luke. And in Luke chapter 9, Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem. That's where he will finish his mission. He will get to Jerusalem. He will be unjustly condemned. He will be mocked. He will be beaten. And he will be hung on a cross. And guess what? He will be the king every step of the way. No one takes his life. He lays it down of his own accord. He did it to pay the price for our sins. And why do we need our sins paid for? You ever think about that? Our passage today tells us it's because this same King Jesus is coming back as a righteous judge. Look with me at verses 26 to 36. Really only verse 35. You'll probably notice there is no verse 36 in your Bible. Shouldn't be anyway. You probably have a note that says that verse 36 is in a few ancient manuscripts, but it's not in our best ones. Either way, it just kind of reinforces the passage. It doesn't change the meaning at all. Um, but we'll read 26 through 35. It says, Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building but on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. To help us get a picture of what the second return of Jesus will be like, he takes us back to Genesis and he shares a few stories from the book of Genesis. First, he recounts the story of the flood and Noah and then of Sodom and Lot, and they both follow the same pattern. People are going about their day-to-day -day activities completely unprepared for the judgment that God is about to pour out on them. Jesus doesn't highlight the sin that's bringing about God's wrath, which is interesting. He doesn't mention the violence, the sexual sin, the injustice. No, instead he mentions the normal mundane things of life that they're doing eating and drinking, going on dates, getting married, going to work, 
Jesus wants to highlight that they were not ready for what was about to happen. He's not trying to give an explanation for why the judgment is coming so much as he is focusing on how unprepared they were for it. And what happens in both of these stories? Twice he says that God destroyed them all. This is what's going to happen at the second coming. When Jesus comes back, he is coming back as a righteous judge. As Jesus himself says in Matthew 25, he will separate the sheep from the goats, some to eternal life, some to eternal punishment. And Josh mentioned a few weeks ago when he was preaching about the rich man and Lazarus how this doctrine of hell and God's wrath, not very popular these days. I've actually been very surprised as I've listened to some preachers um, and the way they've talked about hell and the way they've talked about God's judgment. Um, Preachers that have helped me that I thought to be solid. I wanna share a few quotes from these messages given by what most people would consider solid evangelical Bible teachers. The first one says this, whatever hell is, God didn't make it. Hell or evil or sin, the various names it's called in the Bible, is something that humans have created. Hell is a reality that humans unleash on each other and on God's good world to ruin and destroy relationships. Hell and evil and sin are synonyms? I don't think so. And Colossians 1 would disagree with this whole thing. (laughs) It says that by Christ all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Does hell sound like something that we've created? Here's another one. Would hell be a place of conscious torment for all of eternity, a sort of never-ending punishment? Some Christians have suggested this possibility, though it becomes nearly impossible to believe how a good and loving God could be behind this sort of place. Some Christians have suggested this is a possibility. How about the majority of Christians for all time dating back to Jesus? That hell is a place of eternal punishment has been the dominant view for all of church history. I think most of the time people downplaying the wrath of God or trying to remove the reality of hell are are thinking they're being more loving to people or they're trying to get God off the hook. They think this idea of hell damages his character. Here's the thing though. God does not need our help to make him look good. God has shown us who he is in his word. Okay, our job is to be faithful to that. And there are always cultural pressure points Doctrines that are not popular, and you see people compromise on them all the time because they want to be liked by the right people. They think it's offensive. Our message as Christians is an offensive message. Do not soften the word of God. God doesn't need our help. And it's never loving, never loving to downplay the reality of hell. People need to know their situation. It's not what Jesus is doing here. The reality is we are born children of wrath by our very nature. That's what Paul tells us in Ephesians 2. 
We are by nature children of wrath. You don't come out good. You come out as a child of wrath, born in sin. In John chapter three, John the Baptist, he says that those who believe in Jesus have eternal life. And for everybody else, the wrath of God remains on them. Our natural state is to have God's wrath on us. That's what we're destined for. Everyone, unless something changes. So it's not an exaggeration to say that eternity hangs in the balance with this stuff. Just like God came in judgment with a flood in the days of Noah, and as he visited Sodom with fire and brimstone in the days of Lot, Jesus will come back in that same manner when he returns. So will it be when the Son of Man is revealed. But as always the case with Scripture, when judgment is coming, salvation is coming too. We saw it with Noah and his family before the flood. God saved his remnant. We saw it with Lot and his family before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. He saved a remnant. And we also see it in verses 34 and 35. He says, I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. This is like the proof text for those that believe in a secret rapture, that Jesus will come back and take all the believers up out of the earth. This is like the foundation for books like Left Behind, which by the way, I've never read. You might love it, I'm sure it was good entertainment. Uh, I just think the theology that it espouses is off the mark. There are people in my extended family who are very, very much into a view of the secret rapture. Jesus is gonna come back and pull all believers out of the world. And some of you in this room might believe in a secret rapture as well. And I love my family, and I love you, but there is no secret rapture. That's not what this passage is talking about. Okay, Jesus is not going to come back and take all the believers out of the world, and the chaos is going to ensue, and cars are crashing everywhere as there's no drivers behind them, and planes are going down as pilots are snatched out of the cockpits. That's not what this is talking about. Okay, what we're seeing here is the separating of the sheep and the goats. Our parallel account to Luke 17 is Matthew 24 and 25, and that's where, I've already mentioned it, but that's where Jesus talks about the sheep and the goats. Some will be saved and some will face judgment. Some will inherit eternal life and some will inherit eternal punishment. Those are Jesus' very own words. And man, Jesus is being kind here. He's telling us the way in which he's gonna return. During World War II, the UK built out the air raid siren warning system for potential planes coming above. They could sound the sirens and people would know to get into shelter, bombs might be dropping. That's what Jesus, Jesus is sounding the siren here. So this would be like the Nazis being the ones to sound the siren before they came. Because Jesus is coming as a judge. But he's saying, don't be like the people during the flood or like in Sodom, who are just going about their lives without a care in the world about what God required of them. I'm coming back to judge the earth. And the reason Jesus is coming back is because of all of our evil and sin, and not just those who are murdering Christians in Nigeria and Afghanistan. 
they will get exactly what they deserve. But everyone will get exactly what is deserved. He's coming back to judge every prideful heart in this room in every greedy impulse, in every instance of gossip, in every impure thought, in every angry reaction, every drunken party, in every selfish motive, in every harsh word, every sin, big or small, will be judged. Make no mistake about it. One way or another, every sin will be paid for. And there's only two options. Either you throw yourself at the feet of the king in repentance, trusting in him that he has paid the price for you, or you pay the price for your sins when he comes back in glory to consummate his kingdom. And what's amazing is that this same king who's coming back as the judge is our only hope of salvation. He looked down at us peasants who were in rebellion against his kingship and in love in love, he took our punishment upon himself. He endured the wrath that we deserve so that anyone who turns to him in faith can be saved. Anyone. Even the Taliban member who's shooting a family right now because he found a Bible on their phone. Even the man with a machete who's been chopping Christians to pieces in Nigeria? Even you? Even me? Yes. A gospel that can't save the worst of us is not good news. And the gospel of King Jesus can save anyone. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still God's enemies, Christ died for us. Not after we got cleaned up. We could never clean ourselves up. Not after we bowed the knee. We would never bow the knee to anyone but ourselves. No, while we were enemies of the king, the king came and died for us. That's the gospel of King Jesus. And for those of us who have bowed the knee, who have trusted in the king, have turned to him in faith already, he's got a message for us as well. Let's close by looking at the last part of the warning in verses 31 to 33. He says, on that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. And Jesus is telling us, be ready. If you're a believer today, if you are a Christian, your job is not to try to predict when Jesus will come back. It's to live for the king right here and now. We're told in verse 32, remember Lot's wife. That takes us back to Genesis 19. God was going to judge Sodom and Gomorrah for all of their sin. In Genesis 18, Abraham, who knows his nephew Lot is in Sodom, he begins to plead with the Lord. 
What if you find just 50 righteous people? Will you spare the city? And God says, yep, I'll spare the city if there's 50 righteous. Then 45, and then 40, and Abraham has them all the way down to 10. But there's not even 10 righteous. But God is still so kind. And so he sends some angels, and they come to Lot's house. And after a, the sin of the city is exposed, we will say, the angels tell Lot, get out of here. You and your family, get out of here. But they're totally just kind of, ah, yeah, you know, dilly-dallying. They tell him again, judgment is coming. You guys got to go. And they finally have to whisk him out of there because they were dragging their feet. And as they did, they were given one command, don't look back. That was it. Don't look back. But Lot's wife looked back. And what happened? She immediately turned to a pillar of salt. Well, being told to remember Lot's wife, coupled with verse 31, the message is clear. Don't let this earth become your home. There are so many things out there vying for our affections. Telling us to remember Lot's wife is like asking us, is Christ sweeter to you than the pleasures of this world? Do you want Jesus more than anything this world has to offer? If we really know Jesus, we're not going to be worried about what we're leaving behind. The one on the housetop with his goods in the house, don't go back to the house and take them. Go to Jesus. It's like the parable of the treasure hidden in the field or the pearl of great value. If you understand the value of Jesus, you will be happy to give up everything for him. That will be a bargain. Looking back like Lot's wife did is seeking to preserve our current life. And that's how you can be sure you will lose it for eternity. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But those who value Jesus above all, those who are willing to forsake anything if they can just have Jesus, those are the people who will inherit true and everlasting life. The king has come. He came indiscreetly, born in a small town with humble beginnings. He lived a perfect, sinless life, and he completed his mission to die for the sins of any who will turn to him in faith. And he's coming back. And it won't be indiscreet this time. All the world will know. And this time, every knee will bow. The question is, will you bow voluntarily as one who serves the king? Or will you be made to bow as one who will be judged? There is still time. Turn to King Jesus and be saved. Let's pray. God, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Any time and effort, Lord, being spent now trying to read the times that we're in to try to figure out when Jesus is coming back, may you help us repent 
and repurpose our efforts, Lord, into living for the King. May we be found faithful. Lord, thank you for the warning of the coming judgment. And more than that, Lord Jesus, we praise you for facing that judgment for us and in our place. And I pray for anyone listening who doesn't know you, that you would grant them faith and repentance, that they would turn to you and know you. And may all of us live in light of the reality that Jesus is King. We love you and we pray this in his name.